If you've not worked it out, or perhaps you don't care, I'm sort of working my way chronologically through the 90s, talking about things as they come up. Kind of. You know, I jump around a little bit. But if you're wondering when I'm going to get to the episode about Pauline Pants Down, we have a little while to go yet. As we go through, every few episodes will be a roundup of the year, basically going from 1990 onwards, focusing on bands that did something in that year. If you don't care about any of the story stuff or any of the scene stuff, and you just want some music, then this is for you. If you like history and you want a nice history podcast that tells stories, then the other episodes are for you. Listen to whatever you want. Guess what? I'm not your mum. The bands in this episode all did great work in 1990, although in this first episode we'll talk about a couple of 1989 releases as well. Also, bands who did great work in 1990 but made a bigger impact later will come later. Welcome to Just Ace, a podcast about the 90s Australian alternative music scene, whatever the hell that means. This week we are looking at Falling Joys, Tortals and True, Cosmic Psychos and The Hard-Ons. Falling Joys were one of the big bands of the indie jangle scene, in 1990. They hailed from Canberra, Australia's capital. And you know what they say about Canberra? If you can make it in Canberra, you should move to Sydney and try your luck there. Which is what the Joys did in 1986. By 1990, the band was Susie Higgy on guitar and vocals, Stuart Robertson on guitar, Pete Velzen on drums, and Pat Hayes on bass. Pat Hayes was part of a talented family of Hayes brothers who we will meet again and again. They made melodic indie pop with a dreamy mix of boy-girl vocals. They released a bunch of singles in the late 80s on the Volition label. Volition will be one of the more important Australian dance labels in the 90s, but they dabbled in indie rock, and perhaps never more successfully than with Falling Joys. Here's one of those early singles, You're in a Mess, with Pat Hayes and Susie Higgy sharing vocals, released on Volition in 1988. That is one of my favourite songs in this whole world, and Triple J loved it too, as they did a lot of those early Falling Joy singles. By now, the Hummingbirds had already made it to the charts, and Falling Joys were definitely part of the same scene. They shared the jangly guitars, the female vocals, and the bright melodies. Falling Joys had also come to the attention of North America. The great Canadian indie label Network signed the group and would release their debut album in the US. That label was enjoying massive success with Sarah McLaughlin around that time. 
That debut album, released in 1990 by The Falling Joys, was Wishlist. It featured a couple of those early singles, along with the band fleshing out their pop rock sound. The big hit from Wishlist, in alternative circles at least, was Lock It, and was voted number 20 in the Triple J Hot 100 of all time, held in 1991. Stairway to Heaven was 30, so it's 10 songs better than Stairway to Heaven of all time. It is probably their best known song. Here's Lock It by Falling Joys. Thomas of Weddings Parties Anything says that this is one of his favourite Australian love songs of all time. Wishlist is rightly regarded as the band's best album and a classic jangle pop record. It charted at number one in the Australian Independent Music Charts and number 51 in the mainstream Australian music chart. The band followed it up with several more singles and the network deal opened them up to international touring. Wishlist would have sold more if Volition could get more copies into stores, which would happen when Volition signed a distribution deal with the major label, Sony, partly on the back of Falling Joys, who were all set up to be another next big thing. The second Falling Joys album, Psycho Hum, was the first album of this new Volition slash Sony deal. It was recorded in the UK and released in 1992. Here's the first single, Black Bandages. you can hear that the sweet pop sparkle was gone. Wishlist was, looking back, quite an eclectic and varied album. Psycho Hum took that even further. It wasn't Wishlist Volume 2, which is what some fans wanted. Listening back to the record now, it's a solid, heavy guitar, noisy record in places. It is, I would guess, a byproduct of becoming more popular and needing louder songs to play at bigger venues. But some of the romantic intimacy had gone. Still, the band's big fan base meant that Psycho Hum debuted at 35 in the mainstream chart, the highest charting album of their career. Psycho Hum isn't remembered as fondly as Wishlist. Psycho Hum is a bit all over the place, and looking at various online trackers, Wishlist remains their most popular album. It also failed to produce any big hits in a time in 1992 when alternative bands were flooding the charts. But if anything hurt the success of Psycho Hum, it was simply that Nirvana existed in 1992 and the goalposts had moved. A final album, Ariel, was released in 1993, but by then the alternative scene had changed the story completely. They released an EP and some standalone singles in 1994. One track was Amen, and a dance remix of Amen made it to number 49 in the Triple J Hottest 100 of 1994, with a sound that was more like the dance acts on Volition. Here's Amen, the Testament remix. So, rip it out. Killing roses as they bloom. 
After almost 10 years together, the band broke up in 1995. Susie Hege released a couple of solo albums in the late 90s, and then, like everyone else at some point, Falling Joys got back together in 2011 for a few shows and even a tour. Like the Hummingbirds, Falling Joys helped to lead a new scene of jangly pop rock with strong women up front. Wishlist is a great album, a must if you love 90s indie pop. A collection called Singles and B-Sides is a pretty good wrap-up of the rest of their career. Here's another song I love. It's the opening track to Wishlist. Here's Shot in Europe by Falling Joys. Poor Tales and True were the outlet for singer-songwriter Matthew DeLahunty, with Paul Miskin and Dave Rashley on bass and drums. Originally from Perth but based in Sydney, they recorded a couple of EPs for the label Survival before being snapped up by Ruart as one of their first signings. We looked at Ruart in episode 3. Part of that early Ruart bunch of bands, they were more of a folky band and more lyrical than their peers. They were, in a good way, a showcase for Dealer Hunty's songwriting more than anything else. Their 1989 album Shiver remains their best-loved work, and thanks to Ruart's international ties, it secured a small release in the UK and North America. The album had the single Trust, a significant hit in the Triple J world. It's a lovely, jangly, wordy pop song in the vein of Lloyd Cole. Here's Tall Tales and True with Trust from their 1989 album Shiver. Trust made it to 93 in the Triple J Hot 100 of 1990, when the list was from all time. It charted again the next year, coming in at 51 for 1991. Wish You Were Here by Pink Floyd was 58. It set them up for great success, but the band went and moved to Canada for almost a year, touring North America. This was followed by a move to the UK. This was kind of the Ruart way, shipping a band overseas to try and break it with little support. It didn't work for the Hummingbirds, and it didn't work for Tortows and True. Having said that, Ruart were hardly the only ones. As we move through our story, we will see this again and again. After a lot of touring and adding a series of violinists to the band, Tortows and True would release their second album, Revenge, with an exclamation mark, in 1992, again on Ruart. The first single, Lifeboat, stalled, but more successful was the follow-up, Summer of Love. In the silence you about that summer and everyone you kissed where did all that love 
go wrong At the time it seemed so strong Now this is the age of I me mine Spending up and feeling fine Living on a sharp credit line The rich get richer all the time You say that people are all bad Or I just find that rather sad You're not so dumb, you're not so blind What did you expect to find? Now whatever happened to that Summer of love Whatever happened to that Summer of love Well it seemed that it would last forever Seemed the world might come together Oh whatever happened to Summer of love Summer of Love was the band's highest charting single, making it to 51 in the singles chart, but by then, they too would be wiped out by the grunge wave. Ruart started working on newer acts, and Tor Townsend True found themselves with no support from their own label. Pretty typical of Ruart, who ruthlessly abandoned bands that were on their own books. One more album, 1994's Tilt followed, but it failed to connect or chart. The band broke up in 1995. Tor Townsend True were another sign of where the 90s were going. There was a sweeter, more singer-songwritery side to the early 90s sound in Australia, but they were also a promising band that came along too early or too late. Shiver remains a wonderful album, and there's a best of called That's All Folks. Let's end this with Superstition Highway, a standalone single from 1991. Not on any album, but it's a fun rock. Another 1989 record worth talking about in the context of the 90s is Cosmic Psycho's Go The Hack. It played a small but important role in the development of music in the 90s, and not just in Australia. Based out of Melbourne, Cosmic Psychos were formed in 1982 by Ross Knight on bass and vocals, Pete Jones on guitar, and Bill Walsh on drums. They were a punk rock band made up of a bunch of working class blokes. In their early records, they were alarmingly honest. They just showed themselves as simple farm boys that they were in their lyrics and in their artwork. This was working class music played twice as fast as working class music that came before. Their music has been called Yob Rock, whatever that means. It really just follows the Stooges or Minor Threat as a bunch of kids wanting to release some tension and emotion by playing really, really fast. But they were proudly Australian and sung about Australia. They didn't pretend to be American. Their first EP, 1985's Down on the Farm, picked up some support in Europe and the US through existing 80s indie network far from the mainstream. From that EP, here's Custom Credit.
Their thick Australian accents and song subjects made them exotic to overseas punk fans, and their guitar crunch put them in line with bands from the burgeoning punk scene from around the world. With their 87 self-titled album, which also saw a release in Europe and the US, the band found an international fan base, and in that fan base were people in similar bands who shared the same passion. Some of those bands were in Seattle, and they were bands who would make the city world famous. In the 2013 Cosmic Psychos documentary called Blokes You Can Trust, director Matt Weston gets Eddie Vedder and members of Mudhoney and others to talk about how the Cosmic Psychos were an inspiration to that first wave of grunge bands. Their second album, Go The Hack, was released in Australia in 1989, and importantly, it was released on Sub Pop around the world in 1990. Sub Pop, who had just released the first Nirvana album, would go on to be the most important indie label of the decade. Go The Hack was furious punk rock, but the songs could only be by Cosmic Psychos. From the 1989 album Go The Hack, here's Pub. That grunge connection grew deeper when the band went to the US and made an album with producer Butch Vig, fresh from making Nirvana's Nevermind, which had not yet been released. It was also the first to feature new guitarist Robbie Watts. Cosmic Psychos recorded in the same studio as Nirvana, Smart Studio in Wisconsin. In fact, they were the very next session there after Nirvana finished what would be Nevermind. Interestingly, another important Australian album was made in the session that followed Nirvana's In Utero in the same studio. But we'll get to that. The album Cosmic Psychos made with Butch Vig was called Blokes You Can Trust. It was released in 1991 on the cool indie label Amphetamine Reptile. Their reputation was growing and their existing ties to Nirvana and Sub Pop made them cool. It helped make Blokes You Can Trust a minor hit in the US. The first single was the typically Australian Dead Roo, about dead kangaroos on Australian roads. There's always a sense of fun that borders on funny with Cosmic Psychos. Ross Knight, nowadays the only original member left in Cosmic Psychos, is always good interview talent. But their next couple of albums took the piss a little too much. Playing around with their Yob image, using fake names, it took something away from the brutal warts and all danger of their first couple of albums. People connected to the everyday blokes on their first few releases, and now that was protected by a bit of cynicism. Musically, they remained solid, but they didn't really expand their sound, meaning they got left behind, especially in America. 
In Australia, they remained a favourite to punk audiences and played some big festivals, but they took a long break after 1997, not releasing any music for nine years. Although they've now released the same amount of albums since 2006 as they did in their so-called classic period. I mentioned the wonderful 2013 documentary about the band Blokes You Can Trust. It's funny, emotional and brilliant. Their first EP and first three albums, 85's Down on the Farm, 87's self-titled album, 89's Go the Hack and 91's Blokes You Can Trust are their key works. Sadly, guitarist Robbie Watts died in 2006 on tour of a heart attack. There's a best of called 15 Million Beers and they are still together, still touring. They were important the first Australian band to be picked up by sub-pop and to tap into grunge in an authentic way. They built a bridge between Australia and that important Seattle scene. They also influenced plenty of bands with yob rock becoming a sub-genre here. I'm not sure if all those bands learnt the right lessons with Cosmic Psychos, but we do occasionally get wonderful bands like the Chats, who owe everything to Cosmic Psychos, but are still brilliant in their own right. Let's go back to 89 with the title track from that Breakthrough Cosmic Psychos album. Here's Go The Hack from the 1989 Cosmic Psychos album, Go The Hack. Finally, I have to pay tribute to the hard-ons. In the late 80s, early 90s, there is some snobbiness around the bands that signed to bigger labels like Ruart. One common snobby criticism is how a band like Ratcat weren't even the best band on Waterfront and they weren't that great musicians. That's no fault of Ratcats, but the heart of that criticism is probably because of the hard-ons. They could play. The hard-ons formed in 1982 in Sydney and they were pretty much teenagers at the time. They are Kesh De Silva on vocals and drums, Ray Arn on bass, and Pete Blackie Black on guitar. They all met in primary school and grew up a couple of suburbs from where I grew up, in the suburb of Punchbowl, but that wasn't the only personal connection. They also looked like the Australia I knew. Ray is Korean, Kesh is Sri Lankan, and Blackie is a Croat. More importantly, they were a shit-hot band. Between 86 and 90, the band released four albums and a bunch of standalone singles. It was cartoony punk rock and probably best loved when you're a teenager yourself. There was always a sense of fun in the best work of the hard-ons, even if it lacked any adult wisdom. Adult wisdom wasn't the point. Here's The Girl in the Sweater, a standalone single from 86, released on Waterfront. They also toured and toured hard, playing shows all around the world wherever there were punk fans. They were rewarded with a dedicated fan base in Europe, 
actually making the mainstream charts in countries like Spain and Greece. They were the fifth Australian band to make the top five of UK's NME chart, but the other four bands, like Nick Cave and the Go-Betweens, were all based in Europe at the time. The Hard-Ons were based in Punchbowl. That success in Europe may come down to the language difference and not knowing what their band name meant. So albums like 89's Love is a Battlefield of Wounded Hearts charted in Europe, but they were still underground in Australia, although very much top of the underground, topping the independent music charts throughout the 80s. Their 88 album, Dick Cheese, was one of the albums confiscated by authorities at Rocking Horse Records in 1989, a story I talked a little bit about in episode 2. When Ratcat left Waterfront for Ruart, Waterfront started to worry who else might get poached. They were basically worried about the hard-ons. It's easy to see how the hard-ons would have been, say, the next Green Day. Maybe with a name change, though. So Waterfront stepped up and there was a little bit more effort to take the band to the next level in 1990. That meant a cheap film clip for the next single, Where Did She Come From? It was the lead single from their 1990 album, Yummy, released on Waterfront Records. Here's Where Did She Come From? In the early 90s, some acts on Waterfront were also picked up for distribution by festival records, including the Hard-Ons. The plan was to get more of these bands out into the mainstream to see what worked. You can see this pattern forming already. Falling Joys, Volition and Sony, and now Hard-Ons, Waterfront and Festival Records. It grew the Hard-Ons audience, but it didn't really change their lives. The Hard-Ons also toured with hardcore punk legend Henry Rollins around this time and recorded a single with him, a cover of ACDC's Let There Be Rock. It was their 13th straight number one single in the Australian alternative charts. From 1991, here's Henry Rollins and the Hard-Ons with Let There Be Rock. so many cool things about the hard-ons. A lot is made of their multicultural lineup. The best thing about it is how much they treated it like a non-issue. Over the years, when probed, they have talked about racism, violence, and threats they've gotten from racists. But they fought past it with style and a smile, and it didn't stop them being who they are and playing what they wanted to play. They also looked great. Kesha on drums was so spidery and thin and funny as fuck on stage. It was also the weird thing of being a singing drummer, so as a kid, seeing them on an all-age bill, it was always a head-turner. 
But Kesh doing his thing up the back meant that up front it was the twin attack of Ray and Blackie, both with their long hair over their eyes, guitar slung around their ankles, legs spread and shirts off. Then there's the prolific workload. I always love a band that does non-album singles and the Hard-Ons did a lot of them. The artwork for the band's music and gig posters were done by Ray and it gave them a distinctive look. There's a book of Ray's artwork called The Art of Ray Arn, What I Did on My School Holidays. The title comes from the origins of the band. It started as a lark between mates on a school holiday. I love Ray's art and his style is one of the most distinctive in the 90s Australian music scene. We're going to come across some great visual artists in some of these bands and I will highlight them when they come up. So allow me to massively highlight Ray Arn. As rock music in the indie scene became big business in the early 90s, it became less fun for the band. They never became the next Green Day. The closest the band got to commercial media was to appear in Ratcat's video for Holiday in 1992. I'm guessing that's the only time they ever appeared on commercial TV. Having been touted as yet another next big thing, the band broke up in 1994. It was also in part due to the musical differences. Blackie and Ray wanted to do more experimental music away from straight punk rock. The two formed Nunchucker Superfly, an ongoing side project. Ray, I mentioned earlier, would also continue to sell me seminal albums at Utopia Records. The Hard-Ons reunited in 1998, but by then they were almost the eldest statesmen of the indie rock scene, and the alternative bubble had burst. Kesh moved from being on the drum kit to just vocals. Peter Kostic, the drummer from Front End Loader, joined the band. They released several albums in the next decade on Chatterbox Records, a new label run by Ruart Sebastian Chase and Nick Tropiano. They still occasionally tour overseas and did well, but they survived the 90s and found their level. There were some allegations levelled against Keish in 2021, and he left the band shortly after. Then, in a twist that no one saw coming, they were joined on vocals by Tim Rogers of UMI, who had always been a big fan. They released a new album in 2021 called I'm Sorry Sir, That Riff's Been Taken. It was released on Cheer Squad Records, run by Wally Meany of the Meanies, a band very much inspired by the hard-ons. From the 2021 album, I'm Sorry Sir, That Risk Been Taken, with Tim Rogers from UMI on vocals, here's the hard-ons with Hold Tight. There's a wonderful interview with Ray and Blackie Dunn for the ABC documentary Long Way to the Top in 2001, a big overview of Australian music. It's great that they saw to include the band, but in the outtakes, which you can find online, Blackie goes on a long rant about how people ignored them. Commercial radio, the record labels, magazines, they all stayed away despite their sellout shows, number one indie singles, and their hard work. In fact, they never had a hit on Triple J, and they were never nominated for an ARIA award, and they are criminally under-recognised in Australia. To which Ray reminds him that they are called the hard-ons after all. And yeah, probably some racism as well. 
Like the Heroes and the Ramones, those first four albums are great, if a little samey. If you like what they do, there are four awesome albums of it. They are 86's Smell My Finger, 88's Dick Cheese, 89's Love is a Battlefield of Wounded Hearts, and 1990's Yummy. I would say the last two are the best of the two, and all of them have been lavishly reissued with all the various EPs and non-album singles. There's quite a few compilations, but if you just want a taste, my favourite is the 1999 collection, The Best of the Hard-Ons. It was the first Hard-Ons record I ever bought, so I might be a bit biased. There is a Hard-Ons documentary in production, but after Quiche left the band, it was apparently cancelled. A trailer was released in everything, and I hope they managed to salvage something from it someday. The story deserves to be told. Anyway, more music. I always love the more romantic side of the hard-ons rather than the straight silly. Here's Just Being With You by the Hard-ons from 1989. Let's finish by looking at the 1990 year-end charts. The regular pop charts were compiled by ARIA, but there was alternative music charts compiled by the Australian Music Report. And yes, people were using the term alternative already pre-Nirvana. There's an alternative Australian top 20 singles and albums for the year-end chart for 1990. They would stop doing this as the 90s wore on, as Australian bands would dominate the alternative slash independent charts anyway. We'll see that with 1991. But in the meantime, let's have a quick look at that chart. Topping both the singles and albums for the Australian Alternative Music Chart was Nick Cave with his album The Good Son and the song The Ship Song. Of the 90s stuff, the highest charting single is The Falling Joys, whose EP Omega comes in at number five. Other singles in the top 20 include two from Died Pretty, the highest of which was Whitlam Square at number seven. Outside the top 10 are Where Did She Come From by the Hard-Ons, Word Gets Around by the Hummingbirds, and a track by a band that we'll get to very soon, Tism. Over in albums, Ratcat's Tingles EP made it to number 3. It was still climbing the mainstream charts at this point too. At 7 is Every Brilliant Eye by Die Pretty, 8 is Down Below by The Cruel Sea, and 10 is Hot Dogma by Tism. We'll get to all those bands. Outside the top 10 are Love Buzz by the Hummingbirds, and Wishlist by Falling Joys. Find out much more about all the bands mentioned in this episode on the website, including playlists and videos. I'll also post that 1990 year-end chart on the site as well.
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Just Ace podcast. If you made it here, then you will know that this is where I do all the general housekeeping. Look, first of all, as usual, thanks to all the Patreon supporters, including this week's new patrons. I've decided I'm going to do a big shout out to everyone in the season finale, episode 12 at the moment. Have I mentioned that patrons will get an ebook of the expanded podcast scripts? It'll have some extra materials and also some corrections. I'm working on making the scripts a small book as well, and patrons will get a discount if they want to buy that as soon as I figure out how that's done. There's also going to be a Just Ace poster. Yes, I've designed a poster. I'll be revealing the design very soon, and again, a discount for patrons as soon as I work out how the hell that works. Uh, It will be announced in the next couple of weeks. All that money goes into helping to keep the podcast hosted, the website running, and keeping everything ad-free. There's also a tipping service called Buy Me A Coffee, Not A Pony. Links to all that stuff are in the description. Okay, and the show notes and lots of extra information at justace90s.com and follow me on social media on that same handle, justace90s.com. Next week, we look at a label that took Australian music around the world in the 90s and many people didn't even know about it. Start again.